Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 5th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel ruled that exclusions to a workers' compensation policy that attempt to limit the class of employees who are covered requires an explicit endorsement. In this case, Efren Navarez filed an application for adjudication of claim alleging that he sustained an industrial injury as a result of cumulative trauma ending in 2015. He claimed he was employed by American Choice Van Lines or Go East Movers. Coverage was denied by one of the carriers, American Casualty Insurance Company, based on what it claimed were limited endorsements contained in the policies. Coverage disputes are subject to mandatory arbitration under the Labor Code, thus the issue was submitted for arbitration. The arbitrator found that Go East Movers was insured by American Casualty Insurance during the alleged cumulative trauma period and the arbitrator found that none of the limiting endorsements presented by them complied with the statutory and regulatory requirements of the Department of Insurance. The arbitrator also found that there was insufficient evidence that the employer engaged in fraudulent misrepresentations during the application process, and that there was evidence that American and its agents did not do their due diligence regarding the nature of the business of the insured prior to issuing the policy. The Uninsured Employers Benefit Trust Fund was therefore dismissed as a defendant, and American Casualty Insurance Company petitioned for reconsideration of the arbitrator's finding and order. A WCAB panel essentially affirmed the arbitrator in the case of Efren Navarez versus American Choice Van Lines and others. American argued that it was not required to exclude non-clerical employees because they said the policy only covered clerical employees. However, the panel noted that workers' compensation policies provide coverage to all employees of an employer unless employees are explicitly excluded in the insurance contract with a limiting and restricting endorsement. American could not enter into a workers' compensation insurance contract covering only some of an insured's employees without complying with the insurance commissioner's regulations. If an insurer contends that it has issued a limited policy, the insurer must provide evidence in the form of policy documents. Therefore, American was incorrect that the policy could be construed to only cover clerical employees without an endorsement explicitly limiting the policy to those employees. With respect to Americans' contention that the arbitrator erred in failing to admit and consider evidence of employer misrepresentation and insurer due diligence, the evidence would only be relevant if rescission of the insurance contract was at issue, and in this case, it was not an issue. A workers' compensation policy may be rescinded based on a material misrepresentation by the insured. Rescission is a contract remedy that requires the rescinding party to give notice and restore or offer to restore everything of value obtained under the contract and comply with the California Civil Code statutory procedure. 
However, in this case, American Insurance did not raise rescission as an issue and does not allege that it rescinded the insurance policy in the manner required by law. The New York Attorney General announced an agreement with Johnson & Johnson, the parent company of Janssen Pharmaceuticals, that will deliver up to $230 million to New York State. The New York Attorney General filed the lawsuit back in 2019 to hold accountable the various manufacturers and distributors responsible for the opioid epidemic in New York State. The agreement resolves claims made uh, for the company's role in helping to fuel the opioid epidemic and would allocate payments over nine years with substantial payments made up front. The agreement also makes enforceable a bar stopping J&J &J and all of its subsidiaries, predecessors, and successors from manufacturing or selling opioids anywhere in New York and acknowledges Johnson & Johnson's exit from the opioid business nationally. The trial against all other defendants is currently slated to begin in the following weeks. Additionally, J&J &J will be prohibited from promoting opioids or opioid products through sales representatives, sponsorships, financial support, or any other means. J&J &J will also be prohibited from lobbying federal, state, or local legislative or regulatory authorities about opioids or opioid products. Finally, J&J &J will have to make additional information about opioids and opioid products more accessible to the public, including to patients, healthcare providers, and others. And now our crime report. Sacramento Skilled Nursing Facility Operator Plum Healthcare Group, LLC, and its entity, Azalea Holdings, LLC, DBA McKinley Park Care Center, which is the second largest skilled nursing facility in California, have agreed to pay more than $451,000 to resolve allegations that they've filed false claims in violation of federal law. The agreement resolves allegations that an employee at its McKinley Park Care Center knowingly created billing records for services that were not actually provided. Plum Healthcare Group then used these false records to bill Medicare, leading it to obtain Medicare reimbursements that were higher than warranted. The government also alleges that the management of Plum Healthcare Group learned of the extent of these false billings to Medicare and did not conduct an adequate investigation into this conduct, and then failed to submit a refund to Medicare for the full amount management knew had been overbilled. The settlement with Plum Healthcare Group resolves allegations originally brought in a lawsuit filed by a former employee under the whistleblower provisions of the False Claim Act. The Act permits private parties to sue on behalf of the government for false claims for government funds, and to receive a share of any recovery. The whistleblower in this case will receive over $90,000 as her share of the recovery from Plum Healthcare Group. The whistleblower's claims for retaliation and attorney fees are not resolved by this settlement. 
A federal jury has found four Los Angeles area residents guilty of criminal charges for scheming to submit fraudulent loan applications seeking millions of dollars in Paycheck Protection Program and Economic Injury Disaster Loan COVID-19 relief funds. At the conclusion of an eight-day trial, all four defendants were found guilty by a jury. That includes 42-year-old Richard Ivazan, his 37-year-old wife, Marietta Terabellian, his 41-year-old brother, Artur Esvazian, who all lived in Encino, and 41-year-old Vahi Dadyan, who lives in Glendale. The jury also found that the defendants must forfeit bank accounts, jewelry, watches, gold coins, three residential properties, and about $450,000 in cash. The defendants used fake, stolen, and synthetic identities to submit fraudulent applications for COVID-related relief loans guaranteed by the Small Business Administration. The defendants submitted false and fictitious documents to lenders and the SBA, including fake identity documents, tax documents, and payroll records. A September 13 sentencing hearing has been scheduled, and each defendant will face decades in federal prison. Prior to the verdict, four other defendants pleaded guilty to criminal charges in this case. The U.S. Attorney General established the COVID-19 Fraud Enforcement Task Force to marshal the resources of the Department of Justice in partnership with agencies across government, to enhance efforts to combat and prevent pandemic-related fraud. And in regulatory news, the focus of the WCIRB Actuarial Committee meeting held on June 22nd was a review of recent system medical costs, along with a comparison of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The pre-COVID-19 pandemic analysis of claims before March 15, 2020, showed that overall medical severity per claim had increased slightly, about 4%. Physician services, inpatient, and medical legal costs per claim increased despite a downward trend in prior years. Pharmaceutical costs per claim continued to drop, about 14%, mostly driven by continuously steep declines in opioid costs. Telemedicine services per claim increased at typical pre-COVID-19 rates, about 100%. Then a review of the post-COVID-19 pandemic period, March 15 through December 31, showed that overall medical severity percent mostly driven by increased use of non-opioids. Telemedicine services per claim increased by more than 50-fold. The WCIRB also reported on a legislative cost monitoring update of SB 1160, the Utilization Review Provisions. There is no indication of SB 1160 UR provisions significantly impacting the cost of medical services, and the increased medical severity is driven mostly by fee schedule updates. Overall, the WCIRB reported that loss development is generally flat, claim settlement rates continue to decline, and there was a significant number of COVID-19 claims reported in the first three months of 2021. 
but projected loss ratio for September 1, 2021 to August 31, 2022 remains unchanged. In early 2020, COVID-19 seemed like a potentially significant and disruptive event for the workers' compensation industry. And the National Council on Compensation Insurance, NCCI, published a number of studies on this so far. In their newest report, NCCI has observed $260 million of case-incurred COVID-19 work comp losses, excluding self-insureds, where NCCI provides rate-making services. They provide rate-making services in 38 states. NCCI estimates that COVID-19 claims excluding self-insureds have the potential to ultimately result in work comp losses exceeding $500 million over the entire duration of the pandemic across their jurisdictions. As 2020 private carriers and state funds report 45,000 pandemic-related claims to NCCI associated with $260 million in case-incurred losses. They found that an average COVID-19 cost per claim was about $6,000. Most of the reported COVID-19 claims to date have associated costs less than $1,500, and almost 95% of them have costs less than $10,000. The larger claims, those with losses greater than $100,000, represent about 1% of all COVID-19 claims but they account for about 60% of reported COVID-19 losses to date. Claims in this higher category are generally more likely to remain open for extended periods of time, involve older workers, require inpatient hospitalization, and involve more complications due to the existence of comorbidities. To date, nursing, convalescent home employees, other healthcare workers and first responders have collectively accounted for more than 75% of all COVID-19 claims reported to NCCI. Other workers in the restaurant, building operations, distribution systems, and retail industries have collectively accounted for an additional 14% of reported COVID-19 claims. All, of all the reported pandemic-related claims with a payment or loss reserve, almost 75% have an indemnity component, while only 25% are medical only. The Division of Workers' Compensation has issued an order updating the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule drug list, effective August 1, 2021. The updated MTUS drug list version 0.9 and the Administrative Director order can be accessed on the DWC MTUS drug formulary webpage. The update adopts changes to the MTUS drug list based on the ACOM practice guidelines. Among other changes, there are new drug recommendations for COVID-19 coronavirus, and changes to the status of several drugs from non-exempt to exempt. Further updates to the MTUS drug list will be made on a quarterly or more frequent basis. The DWC welcomes comments from the public on the formulary drug list. Injured workers, physicians, 
pharmacists, and others may submit their questions, comments, and suggestions to the DWC. And in medical news, as part of the Becker's Hospital Review 11th Annual Meeting, presenters shared industry insights and expertise with hospital leaders during a May 17 roundtable. Physicians spend significant time performing non-patient-facing tasks like documentation that are necessary but ultimately take time away from one-to-one patient care. Technology solutions powered by artificial intelligence can reduce the amount of time spent away from the patient, vastly improving both their experience and the physician's experience. Several takeaways from the presentation include the finding that the multiple demands on physicians can fracture their time and attention. Reducing unnecessary technology interruptions improves the patient and physician experience. A physician buy-in is critical for successful healthcare technology solutions. And the pandemic may have removed the technology trust barrier. Healthcare providers and patients alike were forced to make a quick shift from in-person visits to telehealth visits. The successful and speedy adoption of telemedicine could prove beneficial for other technologies, removing any reservations or barriers commonly seen as healthcare system rollout new solutions. And lastly, digital transformation enables healthcare providers to improve delivery of care. Whether it's tracking the patient's journey throughout the healthcare system, visiting patients through telemedicine or remote patient monitoring through wearable technology, digital solutions can improve the patient and physician experience. New data shows that the Delta coronavirus variant is now the third most common in California, underscoring the danger of the highly contagious strain to people who have not been vaccinated against COVID-19. The variant makes up 14.5% of California coronavirus cases analyzed in June, up from 4.7% in May, when it was the fourth most identified variant in California. Experts say the Delta variant poses a greater chance of infection for unvaccinated people if they are exposed. The variant first identified in India may be twice as transmissible as the conventional coronavirus strains. It has been responsible for the rise in cases recently in India, the United Kingdom, and elsewhere. But vaccinated people are well protected against infection and illness from the Delta variant. One recent study found that the full two-dose course of the Pfizer vaccine was 88% effective against symptomatic disease caused by the Delta variant and 96% protective against hospitalization. Los Angeles County, the nation's most populous, has confirmed 123 Delta variant cases, 49 of them among residents of Palmdale and Lancaster. 14 cases of the Delta variant were in people from a single household. LA County data suggests that vaccines are still overwhelmingly effective in protecting people against the Delta variant, as well as other known variants. 
Of those 123 confirmed cases in Los Angeles of the Delta variant, 89% occurred among people who were not vaccinated against COVID-19, and 2% amongst those who were partially vaccinated. No one has died from the Delta variant in L.A. County. The, full, the few fully vaccinated people who have been infected with the Delta variant experienced relatively mild illness. Almost everyone who has died in L.A. County of COVID-19 has been unvaccinated. The results of outbreaks of the Delta variant elsewhere also support the vaccine's effectiveness. Meanwhile, data released by California show that the percentage of the tested population who have antibodies to the coronavirus, which is a sign of immunity to the disease, is also increasing. Experts have estimated that 70 to 85 percent of a population needs to have immunity for a region to develop herd immunity to COVID-19, which interrupts the sustained transmission of the virus. The Delta variant is also spreading nationwide. Neurodegenerative disease has been the subject of costly workers' compensation claims in past years. The most notable of them was the NFL and contact sport-related claims for concussion-caused dementia. So it comes as good news that GlaxoSmithKline agreed to pay San Francisco-based biotech Alector Incorporated as much as $2.2 billion to develop therapies targeting diseases such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. The agreement comes weeks after the FDA approved the first new Alzheimer's drug in almost two decades. It's the biogen drug Aduhelm. This is reinvigorating the industry's efforts to develop more treatments in a challenging therapy category. The Strategic Global Collaboration was formed for the development of two clinical stage potential first-in-class monoclonal antibodies which are targeting neurodegenerative disease. One of them is currently in a phase two study in symptomatic frontotemporal dementia patients and is planned to enter phase two development for myotrophic lateral sclerosis, that's ALS, in the second half of 2021. The second of the drugs is in a phase 1A clinical trial and is designed to treat patients suffering from more prevalent neurodegenerative diseases, including Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's. Frontotemporal dementia is a rapidly progressing and severe form of dementia found most frequently in people less than 65 years old at the time of diagnosis. It affects 50 to 60,000 people in the United States and roughly 110,000 in the European Union, with potentially higher prevalence in Asia and Latin America. There are currently no FDA-approved treatment options for frontotemporal dementia. The therapies are part of an emerging field of research that tries to use the body's own immune system to fight neurodegenerative diseases. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, 
your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarron, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. Thank you.